the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Let's get it underway. We're about 77 degrees all across central Arkansas. We've got some clouds in the air, uh, more partly cloudy than it is uh, uh, mostly or cloudy. So they're there. Uh, do understand that uh, we're looking at uh, rain and thunderstorms all the way through uh, uh, Friday that we could uh, see. And all of that can lead to some flash flooding so be uh, be listening uh shower and thunderstorms around today highs uh in the uh, low 90s uh heat indices may be cracking into the 100 degree mark uh for tomorrow showers and a heavier thunderstorm uh in fact uh, my gauges are are telling me or my predictive gauges are saying as much as a half an inch of rain uh tomorrow uh during the daytime so could get a little wet here for the next couple of days. Probably not a bad thing uh, as far as that's concerned as we've been uh, real dry here now for about a week and a half. Got to have some rain sometime. I just wish it would be a, a typical shower and would do it at nighttime when I'm asleep. And then during the daytime, it would be perfect. But it's not the way of the world. That's not the way that it, that it, that it works how it goes all right hey basically with this day what we always have on thursday uh here in the first hour got jr davis with us from the gilmore group and seth may is with us from the arkansas gop and we're going to kind of uh, wrangle down some of the big topics that are going on uh in the united states and in arkansas i don't think we have any major moving stories here in the state uh It was different last Thursday. Last Thursday, it was all about what was going on in the state. Uh, Today, more about what's going on in the country. And it's beginning to look like people are beginning to start questioning this whole thing about defunding the police, guys. Uh, Thousands of people, now I'm not saying thousands of people got out and and marched in Seattle, but they had thousands of people on a... uh, I guess a stream of their city council and people that wanted to question the city council about defunding the police and showing an unwavering support now uh, for uh, uh, police. Uh, uh, Is this a surprise to you guys or did you figure this would happen sooner or later? It's kind of happened a little bit later than I thought it would take. Let's start with you, Jr. What's your thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the, I think when this first started to surface, the defund the police um, cries from the left, uh, there was just so much going on. I think it took a while for people to kind of um, catch their breath, take it in, that sort of thing. But I think in general, um, a large majority of the country, especially I know for a fact, an overwhelming majority of Arkansans uh, are very much pro-law enforcement. Um, and, and I don't think they've I mean anybody who, uh, you know, pays attention to a conversation when someone says defund the police. That's not the answer. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do to help, you know, make law enforcement better, you know, and, and not every law enforcement officer is, you know, uh, a great reflection on law enforcement. But for every one of those. You know, there are uh, those officers who, you know, do everything the right way and, um, and and are there to protect and serve and serve their community every single day. So I don't know why it took so long. I imagine, again, it's just been a weird year for 2020, um, and it's just taken people that want to digest. But uh, I think most law enforcement officials uh, and, and most law enforcement agencies uh, have the support for the vast uh, of a vast majority of Americans. Yeah, how about you, Seth? What's your thoughts? Yeah, good morning, Dave. I agree. One thing when you look at polling, when you look at institutions such as Congress or the Supreme Court or the presidency or law enforcement, and you look at approval ratings, law enforcement is one of the few uh, groups, one of the few classes like that that you generally see majority support for. Of course, Congress, you know, hedges in the in the low teens, and, and the presidency sort of depends who's in office as to how they're viewed. Of course, it sort of flip-flops uh, depending who's in office. But law enforcement is one of those that, that most Americans, generally speaking, have a broad amount of respect for, even in the times that we're in, in a lot of civil unrest in the age of, of body cameras where we just have, well, body cameras and then actual cameras. We just, in our phones and, and all around us, where everything is seen, law enforcement has still maintained a pretty pretty high bar of respect. I think broadly when we look at, you know, what what is does the government have a role in and what does it not, I think we can all come to agreement that <laughs> it's pretty clear the government is to protect us from all enemies, foreign, dot, 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 and domestic. And I think that when you see what happened earlier in the year in Seattle, in the CHOP zone or CHAZ, whatever they ended up calling that up there, it's just clear that the local government had failed to do what the government's most basic function is, right, a safety. Um, and so then when we look at what's happening in Portland, too, also that there in the Northwest, um, it's just sort of insane that elected officials would um, not – not hold up their end of their bargain of the oath that they took to protect their citizens and to allow this lawlessness. Thankfully, we do have federal agents and, of course, local law enforcement that do take that oath seriously. And I think that's, you know, when you look at people that do take their oath seriously and those that don't, and then you look at approval ratings and polling, it, you see the disparity there. And so, uh, you know, the president has certainly taken a firm stance um, as to where he stands on this civil unrest. His Democratic opponent Joe Biden seems to be a, a bit more just, uh, well, MIA on this subject and a lot of subjects, just me very mealy mouth and, and nothing. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that affects the campaign moving forward. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, Go ahead. I, I think what I was going to say, I mean, look, the most disappointing thing about all of this is that it does feel like Democrats live in this, you know, 280 character world. They look at everything on Twitter and they react as that is the gospel, right? I mean, Governor Kate Brown of uh, Oregon, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State, the mayors in the cities there, they're so terrified uh, of of hurting someone's feelings, you know, or, or getting it wrong, getting you know, not being politically correct at every turn. That they are, they have now essentially rendered their cities, uh, you know, completely useless. They're handicapped; they can't move. Uh, and and I think that that is a wrong message for law enforcement. And and again, there's this idea through a lot of those on the left, there's this, again, that Twitter reaction, I like to call it, that knee-jerk reaction, that hashtag defund the police, you run with it, uh, and, and that's what you know we're seeing in this election. But I just think it's, it's preposterous because sometimes you forget that, that these police officers, you know, some of them are, uh, you know, I'm just saying when you look at where they come from, lower middle class, and get up every day and put their – you know, uh, bulletproof vest on to go out and serve and protect the community. That's the face of law enforcement. They work hard every single day. It's the job. It's a job just like yours and mine. Um, but there's a quite a bit more danger involved with it. Uh, and, and so I just think the biggest disservice is for these Democratic leaders who are so paralyzed by the fear of being politically incorrect that they are completely uh, uh, misserving uh, law enforcement in their communities and putting them at risk, in my opinion. Is that not a huge problem uh, for you guys as well, is that politicians are paying such close attention to what Twitter says or what uh, Facebook is saying, and perhaps at that point you're missing the forest for the tr- uh, because of the trees. You're... you're, you're you're not seeing the, the overarching photo here. You're listening to a minority, and it's making you govern that way. Yeah, Dave, I, I agree with what you said there, listening to sort of that, that Twitter mob. And I think a large part of that is we're seeing a trend now where a lot of elected officials try to be very cognizant of what the the famous L word, as George H.W. Bush said, the legacy. And a lot of people are thinking, well, if I crack down on these protesters, how will that look for my legacy? And they're not thinking about when they raised, you know, their right hand and repeat after me and the oath that they took. So I think, yes, they want to serve uh, that mob because they don't want to be canceled. And that, you know, goes back to the whole theme of cancel culture. They don't want to be caught on the wrong side of that and the Twitter mob. Um, and have to devote their focus to that, which, you know, just isn't simply isn't a way to govern in fear of the Twitter mob. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It's it's, it's we live in a day and age of sound bites, Right. And that's what I feel like, especially during all of this, uh, you know, the situation with, with the protests and COVID-19, there's this um, uh, there is really this sort of void of real leadership uh, in our country. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, at the federal level, I'm talking about the state level. Um, And I think we've seen perfect examples of that, uh, even at the mayoral level in some of these bigger cities like uh, Portland and Seattle, um, that are, that these, these elected officials are so paralyzed 
um, by, you know, with, with the possibility of making the wrong decision or saying the wrong thing. And a lot of them are just playing for that soundbite on the news. And gone are the days, Dave, sadly enough, at least in my opinion and what I think is, you know, the type of elected official who there's a strategy involved, there's a plan in place to make things better. I think nowadays a lot of it is just lip service to get to the next, you know, political opportunity. And and I think right now it's what you're seeing uh, in, in the Northwest, that um, they're afraid to say the wrong thing, so they send mixed signals. And again, the, the most uh, – disgusting part of it is that they are leaving our law enforcement and I say ours because I think anyone who puts on a law enforcement uniform to go out there and protect and serve Americans are our law enforcement officers but they're leaving our law enforcement officers uh, in a tremendous amount of danger because of the mixed messages uh, and and the knee-jerk reactions to this angry Twitter mob. All right, 18 minutes after 6, it's our first break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. J.R. Davis is here from the Gilmore Group. Seth May is here from the Arkansas GOP. We're talking right now about what's going on in some of our major cities, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, New York, and others, and how mayors seem to be capitulating to the mob. We'll talk further when we return here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, if you just joined us, uh, J.R. Davis is here from the Gilmore Group. Seth May is here from the Arkansas GOP. We've been talking about the problems that are going on in some of the cities, like uh, up in uh, Seattle, uh, in Portland, Oregon, in New York, New York, in Chicago. Uh, I got an interesting uh, mention on Facebook that said... Uh, you know, Lori Little complaining that it's out of gun, out of state guns that's propelling the violence in Chicago is like a, a fat person complaining about grocery stores. It's kind of interesting that that's mentioned because if she'd listened to her own police and listened to the National Police uh, Association, they'll tell you that of criminals that are found with guns, only about 7% of them are buying, buying those guns. Uh, legally, most of uh, 93% are uh, getting their guns illegally, you know, out of the back uh, trunk of a car or whatever. So it's not the guns that are being sold in Hammond and Highland. Uh, those are two communities in Indiana close to Chicago. That's the problem. The problem is your police not being given the authority to deal with the violence that's unfolding in front of them. Your thoughts, guys, on that? It's funny, Dave, I can picture it in my head right now, a group of criminals sitting around saying, you know, let's go shoot up a block and cause mayhem. And one guy looks to the other and says, oh, man, I don't have any guns. Do you? And the other guy says, no. What are we going to do? I know. Let's go travel to Indiana, buy some and then come back to Chicago. You know, the idea that that people somehow legally uh, criminals do legally acquire their guns, that that somehow criminals are, are law-abiding citizens in every other aspect of their life except for these, you know, brief moments where they decide to <laughs> to, to kill somebody or, or be in, involved in the drug trade or something else. It's just it's sort of ridiculous that in 2020 we still have this narrative that, that criminals follow laws. 
Yeah, it's not sort of ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mm-hmm. mean, that's, that's the truth of the matter. Hey, Jr., I'm, I'm sure that you fall in the same category that I do on this. This is a, a politician that does not want to take responsibility for her own city. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, that there's this... <laughs> There's this fear that you're going to upset someone or offend somebody. Um, And that's not what you were elected to do. You were elected to lead, make decisions. Um, That's that's the whole point of the job. But when you are someone who's afraid of saying the wrong thing or, you know, offending criminals or, you know, I mean, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And, And I think that's what we're seeing up in. Uh, in Portland, uh, well, you're talking about Chicago. That's what we're seeing in, in you know, places like Portland and, um, and and Seattle. And it's just it's it's mind-boggling to me that these elected officials are so afraid just to, to make decisions, or are too are too afraid to just lead their cities. I mean, people are looking to you because they voted for you, right? And they put you there yeah. to do these types of things. And when you're paralyzed and, and are too afraid to offend, you'll never be the effective leader you're supposed to be for your city. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, I think it's a, uh, you know, I think these mayors are looking for scapegoats and trying to blame anyone they can. I think it's easy to point to the federal government. But I'll tell you this. I thought A.G. Barr's uh, testimony was uh, very impressive. Uh, I love his demeanor, and I think the, you know to basically. Uh, I thought one of the best answers he gave during that hearing was basically, I mean, you know, no, uh, no bones about it. He said, "Look, we are going to protect. Uh, you know, uh, if it's a, if a federal courthouse is trying to be burned to the ground, we are going to protect it. We and we we uh, enforce federal law." on every square inch of this country. And I just thought him being so forceful and direct and to remind people um, that these are attacks and people are trying to burn down federal courthouses, like that's not okay. And when has that ever been okay? Um, but, But we're literally having a hearing with the Attorney General of the United States where Democrats are basically saying, why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. I mean, they're literally like... They don't understand why the federal government went in to prevent federal courthouses from being burned to the ground. Like, think of that. 2020, I'm telling you, we still got five months left of this thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I look at it that there's no doubt in my mind that they're saying what they're saying and doing what they're doing is because in their mind, their voters are the people that are out there burning and looting. And suddenly during that time uh, on on election day, they're going to stop doing that stuff and go to the polls and vote for their candidates. Right. Can you imagine like, uh, oh, oh my God, is it Tuesday, November 3rd? Hey, can you put that kerosene down? Let's go run down uh, to the other courthouse that's not on fire and vote and then come back here and finish the job. Like that is the most preposterous thing. And you're right, Dave. I think they do. They think that somehow – this group of individuals um, are, are, are a constituency, like that they're going to vote for them, that they have to garner their trust. And that's absolutely ridiculous. Those individuals do not vote. They will never vote. 
they are all about chaos. However, yep. you know, across the country, you see these radical left mayors who kowtow to these. Okay, keep uh, your thoughts. JR, yeah, keep your I'm thought. I'll, I'll pick it up with you as soon as we come back. we got to get to the news. Let's do that. J.R. Davis and Seth May with me on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, 25 minutes till 7 on a Thursday. And uh, Seth May is here from the Arkansas GOP along with J.R. Uh, Davis from uh, the Gilmore Group. Uh, let me just read the beginning of this story. I'm reading right off of Fox News. Uh, Chicago, the nation's third largest city, has beefed up the police presence in its downtown tourist district because of a recent rise in violent crime. An additional 200 police officers have been deployed specifically for downtown patrols, Police uh, Superintendent David Brown told Chicago's Fox 32. Now, let me just tell you what what that is really saying it's saying that chicago and their tourist district they won't they're not going to have a tourist district unless they get it under control and now they're trying to get it under control because uh black lives don't matter to the mayor what matters to the mayor is money and uh, the amount of money coming into the city is going to uh, suddenly disappear if your tourist districts disappear. If you can't go to downtown Old Town and get yourself a deep dish pizza, uh, that's going to have a bigger effect on uh, uh, the city because of the tax revenue than a one-year-old little girl or boy being shot in the head by random bullets being fired in the neighborhoods. I think this is just disgusting as I listen to it. They're putting the police in tourist zones. They're not putting the police over in the neighborhoods. They're putting them in tourist zones. Think about that for a moment. Well, that's also doing the exact opposite of, you know, you you do one thing, you say another, right? Mm. Um, This inequality and, and that this is a problem. Um, and the whole like, defunding the police, and we need, you know, to, uh, you know, provide, you know, social and income equality to all, and give everybody a chance at the American dream, and saying all of that, right, and then sticking what you have of your police force into the tourist zones. I just, I mean, to me, that would, if I was, you know, if I was a part of the Black Lives Matter movement or whoever's, you know whoever the people are heading it up there in Chicago, I would be absolutely just ticked off uh, that you have a mayor saying one thing and then making the decision to do something completely different. And I agree with you, Dave. At the end of the day, it's all about, it's all about the, the tourism the dollars, the yeah. money. And, you know, so, but again, it just tells you again that there's so many of these elected officials that are just, Absolutely two-faced. I say that like I've, I've discovered something, right? But I mean, we all know that there are those there are those politicians. But you just, I mean, the the blatant disregard for what you say versus what you do is just sad. Well, here's what Hopkins had to say, uh, who is a second ward alderman, where Navy Pier uh, is located. Uh, Right now, you have people that believe they can do anything downtown without any fear that they will be arrested or face any consequences at all, unquote. That just about sums it up. When the criminals think that, you got lawlessness in your city. That's the bottom line. 
Yeah, two points, Dave, to what Jr. had said just before the break. I, I really do think a lot of it comes down to they think it's sort of a, a reciprocal relationship for votes. They, they have some, these big city mayors, some vision that uh, being on the side of the rioters and the people causing mayhem, it means those people are going to go vote for you. And there's just no evidence that those people are constructive yeah. citizens in a democracy and vote. Um, and then furthermore, Dave, I think another thing that we're seeing, you know, you saw this here in Little Rock. In fact, yesterday, Dempsey Bakery, a business downtown here, uh, had been vandalized for the second time uh, since May. And somebody I saw on Facebook or Twitter had commented, you know, the mayor ought to, ought to step in and do something here. This is why businesses don't want to be downtown. And so when you allow this sort of stuff to go on repeatedly in these in these big cities, and a lot of big cities are trying to have a revival of, of the classic American downtown atmosphere. You just simply can't have that when you let uh, the, these sort of things happen, and, and you really don't do anything about it, and you don't have any any really any words to even share on the subject. Yeah, how about Duckworth, guys? She's up for a possibility. From what we're reading, is she's on the short list uh, of uh, Biden's vice presidential list. And uh, she here's what she said yesterday. She was talking about Trump's plan to send uh, federal agents to Chicago to help quell the violence there and claimed that it was just a, in her quotes, political stunt. And I don't think that go, that's going to win me any any votes from somebody who's. Uh, running for, you know, looking at being a vice presidential candidate. She said you cannot come in and politicize government in a way that attacks Americans peacefully exercising their First Amendment rights. Peacefully. They're not peacefully uh, out there. There's, if you remember, and this is going back to the start, but, you know, there was that night, there's actually the, the series of nights uh, in, in Minneapolis uh, when the protests started that I'm sitting there watching the television. And then here's the stark contrast. And this is where these leaders, um, you know, I think have to do some soul searching and really figure these things out because the stark contrast was this. That night, there was just unbelievable destruction we saw the buildings being burned uh there were reporters going live out there from the streets of minneapolis and 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 it was just total chaos and destruction and there was not a police officer in sight there was no one and this happened for you know what two three days with zero law enforcement uh you know coming to the aid uh, of these small businesses the very next day here's the contrast is that you have all these people out there, right? The constituency, the ones they don't want to anger or upset. The very next day, you have all of these members of the community that get up early, come out, start cleaning up their city, and picking up the glass and boarding up the windows. And it's the, and those those are the silent majority. Those are the ones that want something to happen. They want law enforcement. They need law enforcement. Do they want change? Sure, sure, they want change. But they also understand the fundamental reasons we have law enforcement in the first place. Uh, and, and that night, I still remember thinking everything they these people who are setting these fires, everything they say they stand for and want to change, they are doing the exact opposite. They are 
burning down black businesses, small businesses, uh, and ruining people's livelihoods. And that's all I could think of watching that night after night thinking, why aren't they sending in police officers? Why aren't they sending in the National Guard to help protect these individuals? It's just that, that to me is what it comes down to. They worry about those who are causing chaos because somehow that's going to affect their the, the outcome of their election versus the silent majority that are sitting at home fearful for their financial livelihood or their family's health um, and just want someone to step in and do something. And, and, and I think that's kind of where we are with America. But, you know, the ones that, that what are the squeaky will gets the oil and that's yeah. exactly what's happening right now. Now, yeah. real quickly, hey, Seth, let me ask you this question. What about this gaslighting that we're seeing happen? You got Duckworth, for instance, right here, saying that it's peaceful demonstrations. You got Jerry Nadler, a U.S. congressman, saying that mm-hmm. Antifa is a myth. You've got Pelosi and Schumer saying, don't believe your eyes. It's not what's happening in our in our uh, cities. You've got the, the governor and, uh, of Portland and the mayor of, of uh, pardon me, the governor of Oregon and the, and the mayor of Portland saying, no, these people aren't being uh, uh, sinister, uh, sinister. They're not doing bad stuff. And you got the mayor up in uh, Seattle saying the same thing. How long yep. can you get away with this kind of gaslighting? Well, gaslighting is, is the exact term to describe it. It reminds me, CNN had a film crew uh, up in the chop zone in Seattle early on, I think the first day, and they said, oh, it's very peaceful. And while they were on air, some guys came up, roughed up the cameraman, and threw him out. You know, and so it, it just defies what we're seeing with our own eyes, calling this peaceful. And we've seen uh, the videos. We've seen them in White House briefings. And, of course, the news stations cut away from that footage. That's how rough it was. That's how, quote, unquote, I'm using air quotes here, peaceful the protest was that the news stations didn't want to air these clips from the White House briefing. But, Dave, it's peaceful. It's peaceful. you got to understand. So, no, it, you're right. It's completely gaslighting. Just, just blatantly lying to us <laughs> as we sit and watch it happen, saying what you what you think you see, you don't really see. That's not really what's happening. Yeah, it is. We're looking at it. Yep. It's absolutely happening. All right. Got to get our final break in. When we come back, uh, the main teachers union in America said, well, we don't really want to go back to school, but we don't like online teaching either. What? We'll talk about it when we come back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. All right, we're back to 10 minutes uh, till 7 here on the uh, Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, Seth May is with us, Arkansas GOP. J.R. Davis is with us, the Gilmore Group. And uh, let's talk about going back to school. Where do you guys sit at about reopening the schools? Well, Dave, I think both the governor here in Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, and the president have been quite clear the benefits of children being back in schools. We remember earlier in the year when the spring semester closed here in 2020, a lot of uh, especially teachers emphasizing what students would be losing by cutting the semester short and what that would do to their long-term uh, education K through 12. Well, what do you think skipping a whole year of school is going to do if skipping the last couple of weeks was that detrimental? So I think we've got to be smart uh, about how we how we get back. But what you're seeing, and you sort of alluded to it right before the break, is a lot of teacher unions across the country saying we absolutely don't want to do in-class instruction 
Eh, but we're not so big on the online thing. Well, it's a little binary in this instance. There's not really a, I mean, you can do a hybrid in the middle ground, but then you're doing both of those. And if you don't want to do either, you surely don't want to cross and, and do both. So I think it's a necessary thing. But we do have to be smart about how we how we go back, and I think we can do that. It's It's a challenge, but that's what you do is live up to challenges, and I think we can live up to it. Okay, Jr. Yeah, I think it's I think it's complicated. I mean, I think we should absolutely uh, have school. Uh, we don't need to push it back. We we I think that our students are in a really difficult situation here. And I mean, just with their education. I mean, we basically shut things down after spring break uh, and scrambled uh, to figure out how to teach virtually. Right, and and it was it was very very difficult. Um, you had teachers who were having to, you know, teach each student virtually online, trying to make sure that they had their instructions. The parents had to not only stay home and work, but also help teach their kids. And, and it, it's just, it, it's just to me, there's, it's very, very difficult to say, you know, we're going to continue to keep our kids home um, and instruct them virtually versus in-person um, instruction and you know I think the biggest thing is for those students who are in you know kindergarten uh, and first and second grade I mean those are critical uh, grades for children where they're actually learning how to learn right that sets them up for the rest of their uh, you know uh, time well, in school yeah learning life. high school yeah so I mean they're literally learning how to learn and I think that in-person instruction is so so critical and we're in danger of losing a generation. I'd really believe that. Um, and so I think we, we have to figure out a way to uh, have school this fall, do it in a safe way, but do it. You know, I just I really think that's 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 what our goal needs to be. And we need to figure out a way to do it. And I will say one last thing on it. You know, I think what we're going to have a problem with this fall is all of the different approaches to schooling. Uh-huh. throughout the state of Arkansas. I mean, you've already seen it up there in Fayetteville. They've stepped in it already and angered parents and angry students, and they've got this weird new concocted way that they said they're going to have, uh, you know, students on a Monday, Tuesday, and then another group of students on a Wednesday, Thursday, and then virtual on a Friday. And I- I'm telling you, to me, that is going to be the biggest issue in the fall. This fall semester is all of the different approaches to trying to have school across the state. And that's where I think you're going to see a lot of the inequities in poor communities. Those the, basically is this day, the gap between, you know, your, uh, you know, a family that a more affluent family versus, you know, a poor family in Arkansas, that gap is going to widen this fall because of the sort of uh, lack of resources in schooling um, and whatever that school district decides to do with their kids and staff. I mean, I, I just, I really think that is going to be the issue this fall, and people need to be aware of it. Let me tell you something that is not lost on me, and it, it's an interesting thing to look at now. Uh, Ten years ago, when they were trying to get uh, started uh, uh, online schooling here in Arkansas, they, the, the, the politicians and the Department of Education here in Arkansas fought against it tooth 
and nail. I mean, they didn't want to see it happen. They did everything they could to keep it from happening. Uh, My daughter was lucky enough that she got to do it because she was part of 1,000 students that were allowed, that were at-risk students that got an opportunity to do do the online uh, education. And then a few years down the line, uh, a few more students were allowed to do it. And you'll remember the last time we had a general assembly, uh, the uh, um, teachers union fought against this stuff uh, wholeheartedly. They didn't want any tests. They didn't want anything to happen. And now here we are when we need it the most and Mm -hmm. we're not ready for it because the teachers unions and the people who are beholden to them all the time are now sitting in with holding in their hands the reason why we're not ready. Yeah, Dave, and I, uh, when I worked for the governor on his reelection campaign in 2018, I finished my whole last semester. I, I was still in school, and I finished my whole uh, last semester at Arkansas Tech online. And so I, that, and that has been a trend we have seen for years, more and more classes transferring to uh, online specifically, and JR is also an alumnus of, of Arkansas Tech. There's such a large population of Arkansas Tech, it's really the sort of the online school for the state. There are people all over the state in the thousands that, that go for online classes for a variety of reasons. So we're seeing that trend, uh, and we know that's going to percolate. It already did when I graduated high school. To, I you know, still took some online classes for college credit in my senior year. So I think we're going to see the online even trend some, somewhat into high school, but certainly that in-person instruction, that point JR just made earlier is so critical for those younger ages. And as, as he put it so eloquently, you're learning to learn. And that, that is so key. And, and you can't transfer that <laughs> online over a screen to a child. It is sort of a, the human interaction with classmates, but to your point, Dave, largely, uh, for seniors and certainly uh, college students, the, the trend for online is going to continue, and we've got to accept that. Yeah, not only that, but universities have to accept the fact that uh, if people are going to be learning online, you can't charge them the same amount of money that you're charging somebody for room and board and everything else. That's got to be right. checked down pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, as well. And if not, you're going to end up with huge lawsuits, no doubt. Well, guys, we're out of time. We could talk more about this particular topic. I'll pick it up. I I just got a message from uh, State Senator Kim Hammer. He's going to join us right after the 7 o'clock news, so we're going to be talking to him. But I I honestly believe coming up in January when the General Assembly gets together, uh, I I know that hate crime uh, legislation is going to be a big topic, but I do believe that, uh, you know, the whole thing about getting broadband in this state is going to be a massive massive topic during the next legislative session uh we got about oh 70 seconds here you think that's the case seth is are they going to be fighting that out about how much money they're going to spend on broadband i i think so we talked about it a couple weeks ago does is this an issue broadband that makes it into the gop platform and i said it it wouldn't be a surprise to me i know broadband has been a big priority for the Republican women's leadership group in the House and the Senate. Um, so, no, I, I think you're right. I think this will be a major issue moving forward. 
Look, All right, sir, I'll just go ahead, Jr. Yeah, Thirty I'll just seconds. Really fast. Look, the Governor Hutchinson. I think we can't. We'd be remiss if, if we if we didn't mention this and remember the fact that Governor Hutchinson has laid the groundwork for broadband uh, in Arkansas. He said two years ago that within four years we want to be able to get broadband in every rural part of Arkansas. I think we're on track. I think this heightens it, and I absolutely think it should be part of the GOP platform and an issue in the 2021 session. All right, J.R. Davis and Seth Mays. Thanks, guys, for being on with us. Seth from the Arkansas GOP, and of course, J.R. from the Gilmore Group. We'll talk to you next Thursday, guys. Have a good day. Coming up after the news at the top of the hour, it's uh, State uh, Senator Kim Hammer with us on the phone on the Dave Ellswick Show. Seven o'clock hour. We're moving it right along here on the Dave Ellswick Show. You've got about 54 minutes to get to work if you got to be there by eight o'clock. We're still looking uh, in the upper uh, to mid 70s across uh, the state for our temperature right now. Looking for a high in the low 90s, around 92, 93 degrees. Heat index right around 100 degrees, and more clouds than uh, sun today, but uh, and a better chance of rain. Uh, happening uh, throughout the day uh, than we've had in previous days. It's going to be like that until we get to uh, Saturday afternoon and then uh, the ripple in the atmosphere, so to speak, will move past us and uh, we'll get back to just sunny skies and highs in the upper 90s. Kim Hammer joins us, uh, state senator for the uh, state of uh, Arkansas and uh, got a, a show on uh, 101.1 FM every Saturday at noon. It's a, um, it's a must-listen-to show. He uh, does a great job of letting you know what's happening uh, at the uh, Capitol, keeping you up to date. I mean, after all, he's working with the guys, so he knows what's going down up there. And let's talk about the COVID-19. What kind of things should uh, the listeners know about, Kim, that perhaps has not been reported uh, extensively within the media? I'd say probably the big thing, Dave, although they they did write up a pretty lengthy article, but, you know, they're always limited by the amount of space they've got to print. That's the benefit of, you know, being on the radio. You can kind of talk it out, talk it through. But, uh, you know, with regards to the uh, discussions in the past two weeks on the funding for the contact tracing i'd say that was probably you know one of the biggest discussions because of all the money that's getting allocated for it right so what 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 is what are the committees uh, saying about all of this uh, what are they seeing i mean this is some really uh, thin ice to trod to be honest I, I don't like the idea that my government may be you know following me if we can put it that way well, and one of the things the health department said, you know, because there, there are multiple 
concerns expressed with it. One is, you know, the security of the information. Of course, we got a lot of fraud going on in the unemployment world, um, you know, with people's unemployment claims and people having their information taken and used for fraudulent claims, which I know last week alone in the Benton Police Department, I think they said they had 200 police reports filed on that. That's just wow. in Benton alone. Um, but I, I do think there's a, a level of concern on the part of people as far as what's done with that information. The one thing about the uh, contact tracers is they don't ask for your Social Security number, so that's one thing your folks need to know is if anybody calls them and they want their Social Security number, uh, that is an automatic hang-up-your-phone um, indicator right there because that's, that's fraudulent. Um, but it's it's about a 12-page report they go through, and they, you know, are, the intent of it is who, who all have you been in contact with and you know since you were originally tested um, one of the problems is the delay time uh, between that was a big point of contention in the meeting the other day the delay time from the time that the the test is actually given and the results are actually returned and the effectiveness of contact tracing if that goes for an extended period of time I mean, you know, let's think about that for a moment. For instance, back in the 70s, uh, they had an outbreak of venereal disease, and they wanted to, if you went in and were being, you know, don't don't assume that I was part of this. That's not the case. Something you uh, heard. Yeah, I was reporting on it, okay? You got, you got people going in to be tested for a venereal disease, and they're questioned about who did you... Who did you have intimate contact with? And then they went and talked to those people. And then they went to talk to the people that those people had intimate contact. And you had that going on. But this seems to be like it's even more uh, invasive as far as, I mean, you're talking about who did you talk to, you know, kind of stuff. Where did you happen to go where there maybe there were more than 10 people? This takes in a lot more folks. Uh, as far as the, trying to uh, to be able to follow up contact, correct? Yeah, and 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 that's part of the. Um, I mean, it casts a pretty broad net. Now, what are they doing? You know, are they doing anything uh, mysterious with the information when they get it? Not, I don't believe that. Not in the state of Arkansas. I can't speak on behalf of any other state, but I don't think that anyone intentionally over at the health department would do anything like that. I've got full confidence in the integrity of the people themselves. But they they do gather a broad spectrum of information as far as trying to backtrace who all you've been with since you first were diagnosed with the, uh, you know, with or that you first had your test because you're not really diagnosed until you get your test results back. And that's part of the challenge is the delay in the testing results delays the ability for them to go back and and capture how many people you've been with because if it was kind of like we said in committee the other day if they call you and they say well seven days ago who were you around some of us have trouble remembering who we were around this morning let alone seven (laughs) days ago i'm with you on that one yeah yeah that's the truth so what did what did what did they what did they say when you asked those kinds of questions well that's that is their intent for wanting more contact tracers is so that they can do a better job of getting on this quicker. However, and, and this was the point of contention in the meeting the other day, um, for the money that they were requesting, 
against the money they already had appropriation for and how much they said it would cost each month once fully staffed, the math didn't add up because they already had plenty of appropriation to do what they said they needed to do to be able to get fully ramped up in order to be able to be effective in contact tracing. And the governor speaks about it, or he's quoted, I think, in the paper this morning. The real problem is if you don't have the supplies for the testing, then you're asking people to you're asking people to self quarantine or to quarantine without really knowing what the you know what the test results are when they come back. And so it, it all really keys in on how quick can we get the test turned around. And without yeah. supplies you can't get the test turned around. Yeah, I can say that at uh Salem, we had somebody who was contacted and told, that, hey, you you were in contact with somebody who was in contact. And I'm not kidding you. This way it went that uh, they were in contact with somebody who had tested positive. So they went in, had a test and it took uh, four days for them to get the results back. And during that time, they self-quarantined on that. That can really have a ripple effect uh, in business. Uh, when that kind of stuff happens. Well, and that's, you know, that's what one of the representatives made the case of in the committee the other day down in his community. He said, you know, one one child in a daycare that's provided services by the company that these people work for had a positive result. Well, they self-quarantined everybody until they could get the results back, and that impacted 65 people and they were still waiting on the test results to get back for the other, for the 64. And so for that whole time, they were locked down. And I think they were like into day five, six, something like that, but they still hadn't got the results back. And that's where the problem comes in. Um, you got, you got people isolated that you don't know for sure whether they have it or not. Yeah. You got the, I mean, Joe has talked about this from Joe's garage uh, he was using, uh, I think it was McCarty, one of their dealerships. Uh, one of their people tested positive. They shut down the whole dealership for several days. I mean, you can't do that to a small business. You do that to a small business, you may put them out of business. Well, and then we're still dealing with, you know, we're still dealing with some of the unemployment issues as far as getting claims out to the people that are businesses that, you know, are waiting for waiting for the money. I talked to one yesterday, as a matter of fact, in that boat, uh, still waiting for their money to come in. So uh, you got to kind of balance the you got to balance the effects of it. Um, I, I would say this on the if if the test results, the keys are if we can get the test the things you need to make the te- to do the test, that's getting, that's one thing. So if we get the supplies in, that's one thing. If you don't have a turnaround time, according to medical articles that we used, if you don't have the turnaround time within one to two days, contact tracing is not effective because of the delays. So you got to get them, you got to get the test materials in, but then you got to have the capability to turn it around. And these commercial labs, as stated in the article this morning, they're so backed up that they hope maybe by the middle of next month or the month after, you know, it'll be opened up. But in the meantime, we're dealing with what we're dealing with. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because uh, on this, you got to kind of play. You got to be Nostradamus here, Senator. I mean, seriously, you're setting up a program 
to see if if other people have been are, are going to be uh, you know typhoid Mary so to speak and carry this disease, but. The problem is, is that not everybody shows all the classic symptoms of this sickness. So it's like hard to know who's sick and who is not. It's not just a number of cases. It's by who is the sickest, is it not? Well, this is just personal opinion, and some others may dis- differ with me. But, you know, if you're asymptomatic, you're walking around, you don't even know you have it. And we don't know how many people are out there that have it, that are spreading it, unless we could, you know, magically test everybody in the state at one time or you know i think that's what they're trying to do like with the nursing home populations and the prison population the contained populations where they can go in there and blanket test them but the problem is every time you do that then community they can't get tested or can't get the results back because there's not the test materials and we're not getting tested then it just keeps multiplying and and that is that's part of the challenge. Um, let me let me say this too, with regards to the money the other day. That you got like two train track, you got two trains going down two separate tracks side by side. You got contact tracing, which is on one track. You got testing, which is on the other. And right now, they're throwing money at contact tracing, which that engine is getting out ahead of the test. And I think the theory is if they get enough contact tracers out there, when the testing catches up, then they'll be able to you know, we'll have the ability to be accurate. But the challenge in the committee the other day was they already had millions of dollars set up for contact tracing to take care of what they said their need was. We weren't wanting to give any more money. Some of us weren't wanting to give any more money to that area. We were wanting to give money to testing and and get that train ahead of the two tracks. That was a right. big battle. Understand what you're saying. 19 minutes after 7, got to get our first break in on the Dave Ellswick Show for the 7 o'clock hour. If you just joined us, State Senator Kim Hammer is on with us. When we come back, let's talk about hate crime legislation, what the governor is saying about that, see what he has to say uh, in, in his opinion, and we'll be back with that when we continue on the Dave Ellswick Show. Well, I meant to mention this as we started off this half hour, but I uh, was remiss in not doing it. I wanted to get right into my interview with uh, State Senator Kim Hammer. But just about 30 minutes ago, NASA's Mars 2020 Perseverance rover was launched, and it's on a mission uh, out to Mars. Uh, What makes it interesting is that it's carrying a rover that will be able to fly uh, once it's on the Martian surface and cover a huge area uh, for scientists to see. This uh, Mars helicopter, uh, it's dubbed in, uh, what's it, in Ingenuity. The helicopter will be the first aircraft to attempt powered flight on another planet. And I read a, an in-depth article about this. The rover won't get going for three or four days after it lands because they have to teach it how to fly it's really it's really strange first time it flies it's only going to go like 10 feet and then it'll go 50 feet and then it'll get to the point where it can go long distances but i thought it was kind of weird that they got to teach it to fly i wonder if it is painted in the colors of a robin i don't know but 
You know, you watch <laughs> robins push their babies out of their nests and make them learn to fly. I've had, I've had a bunch of robins running around my backyard, baby robins, as they were learning how to fly, and the mama sitting up on top of the fence squawking at them. It was really amusing to watch. But our guest is uh, State Senator uh, Kim Hammer, who is with us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. And we were talking about contact testing and how to follow how to, or contact follow-up after testing for COVID-19. And I think everybody can understand uh, the complexity uh, of what they're talking. It's going to be tough. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the governor, in fact, uh, was a week ago Monday, the governor said that everybody has to wear a mask in the state. And a lot of state senators and state representatives uh, took umbrage to that in that the governor did not contact the state Senate nor the state House of Representatives to let them vote or have a say on what's going on. And so it was like, are people really getting their uh, representative government that they should get? I understand this is a tough uh, topic at a time like this, but... uh, do you believe that members of the state Senate and state House want to come back for a special session and address this? Do they do they see, you know, problems with uh, one branch of government making those kinds of dis, uh, decisions, uh, uh, Senator? I think that uh, as far as coming back to address a specific issue like the mask, I don't see that being the basis for calling a special session just to have the discussion about the, about the mask. What I would, and I don't see a special session getting called because I don't think that um, the governor would have to be the one to call the special session, and I don't see that happening, and we're not that far off from the general session actually in January. So I don't see any special session getting called to deal with something like that. However, I will say a piece of legislation has been introduced that would uh, adjust the governor's power under emergency authority, and it would insert the legislative branch into the discussion. The framework of the bill is that eight days after the governor would declare a statewide emergency on the basis of health, that the legislative branch would be called into session um, to affirm or uh, to stop the proclamation and that would give us the authority to agree or disagree on the basis of the argument that would be made within eight days of the um, of the special session being called and then the way it's written now uh, every 45 days uh, ALC which is a, um, a division of the legislative branch that makes decision in between sessions every 45 days ALC would have that authority to either terminate the decision or to allow it to continue. And so I don't see a special session being called just to discuss mask. If one is called, I know there'd be an effort to get that put on there um, because we're going to find out here before long if the governor is going to extend, you know, the emergency again, which based on testimony of Dr. Romero in the committee the other day, he intends to recommend to the governor to extend the emergency um, proclamation. Well, at least he showed up for the uh, the meeting. There's been several instances here lately where committees have met uh, for the Senate and for the House, and the people who are the heads of those particular departments haven't shown up. Uh, that really is something that can't be tolerated, isn't it? 
Well, it's always good when, in the previous case, Dr. Smith, if he was to show up, it would it would carry some weight. Doc, and give Dr. Romero credit; he did show up, and yeah, um, you got to you got to respect the fact he's at the top making a lot of decisions. And every time we had a committee, if he had to show up, he couldn't get his job done. But the fact that he showed up the other day spoke volumes. Now, whether we agreed or disagreed with him, that's another subject. Just the fact that he had the respect for the legislative branch to show up went a long ways. All right. Let's take a break. We've got to get to the uh, rush uh, update. Do you have a little bit more time for this morning? I, I do. All right. We'll pick it up when we come back. But right now, Rush Limbaugh is uh, going to be part of our show. He does this every morning at 730. So uh, let's uh, join him and then we'll come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM. The answer with State Senator Kim Hammer and talk about local issues. All right. About uh, 23 minutes to get to work on time at 8 o'clock. Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM. Uh, the answer, looking for a high today around 92 degrees, a real fuel temperature of about 105, a 60% chance of afternoon thunderstorms, and that carries into the evening uh, where it will be about 64%, a chance of a half an inch of rain overnight, and uh about two-tenths of a percent during the day. And I'm glad that I called PI Roofing uh, and got, and they were supposed to come out on Friday to fix my uh, house. And I got a call from them, and they came out uh, Tuesday uh, to uh, uh, make sure, because of these uh, chances of rain going up, to make sure rain didn't get into that leak that they got to fix on Friday. Uh, and they came out, and they put a material, I don't know exactly what it, it is. It looks like kind of a like a fake shingle uh, around the area to keep the water from getting into the leak site. So I don't have to worry about that while they get everything set up to come out on Friday and to fix the area of my roof where uh, an old uh, direct TV antenna was uh, causing uh, problems. So uh, that's the kind of stuff you can, you know, uh, expect from PI Roofing. I mean, they weren't supposed to come out, out on Tuesday. They called me and said, hey, they got a few minutes. They want to come out and do this. Uh, is anybody going to be home? I said, yeah, I'll be here. And, uh, of course, they showed up, went on the roof and took care of everything. Didn't have to talk to me. Just uh, knew that they, what they were going to do went up and uh, they already knew where the area was and they uh, fixed it, ready to get fixed on Friday for the uh, complete fix that they'll do then. And that's uh, the greatness of PI Roofing. They take good care of their customers, so I'm not worried about any damage inside my house from one of these uh, leaks. So when you need your roof fixed, uh, call PI Roofing, uh, 707-3515, 707-3515, or visit them online, piroofing.com. Back with you here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Let's get back to talking uh, with my special guest, uh, the, the state senator from down in the uh, Benton Bryant area. That is Kim Hammer, and uh, he has joined us today. And, Senator, uh, what, what's going on with, uh, uh, do you think, the, the Senate right now? I mean, Hendren evidently has put together a piece of legislation uh, dealing with hate crime, the, gov- the governor has uh, 
said that that's one of the big topics for him uh, in the next legislative session. And I personally, I think that's that's not a really, really important uh, topic. The governor thinks that since we're only one of four states that don't have hate crime legislation, that in some way that diminishes our standing uh, around the United States. I don't think that that's the case. I mean, hate crime legislation does nothing that regular legislation for people who perpetrate crime should be doing in the first place. What do you think, uh, Senator? It doesn't bother me that we're one of four states that doesn't have state crime legislation because when you look at the states that do what they conceived in their image as being a solution to the problem has actually created more problems than solutions. So I don't think the argument that we're one of the last four states to not have any kind of hate crime legislation on the books is motive good enough, number one. Number two, um, even though we're in difficult economic times, I think that we could be doing better as far as recruitment of industries into the state, uh, especially when it comes to retaining the industries that are in our state that are you know, looking at moving elsewhere, such as Cameron Valve out there is splitting up their operations and moving to Houston and up to one of the northwest states. Um, and, and why and did some, they? Why did they say they were moving, uh, Senator? Is there a is there a story in, in that that we should know? I think that's something that you know you need to get down into as far as um, you know. Was it because we didn't compete with them enough? Did we even know they were making a decision? Those kind of things. But you know, what I would rather us spend our energy on as a legislative branch is focusing on what what are the areas that we're behind in that are substantive in nature, such as our health care rating and some of the other things. And let's put all of our energies and attention into that to improve ourselves that way. Because if you if you work on those areas, you know, the economic environment, the health environment, the educational environment, uh, if you work on those areas, a lot of times you take care of other areas. And I think you would see that as a ripple effect, you know, with regards to the hate legislation. If I was going to do anything at all with the hate legislation, and one thing I'm working on that um, I've got to work through the traps on it, every crime is motivated out of hate. But where we get into a problem is when the prosecutors go into court and they have to plea bargain down the cases in order to get the convictions. I would rather work on it from the angle, if we're going to do anything at all, I'd rather work on it from the angle that we take away from the prosecutors the ability to plea bargain down if the crime <clears throat> was stimulated by hate because we've already got a maximum enough, we've already got enough years to maximize punishing somebody that does something purely motivated by hate. We just need to make it where they can't have those years plea bargained away. And that would address both problems without creating a whole new problem. All right. So do you see this as being a major bone of contention coming in January? I mean, uh, the governor says he's going to put a, a lot of his credibility behind this. I think we'll just have to get in the session and see. You know, as far as my position where I stand right now, I don't see the necessity of it, especially if it's going to take away energy from other things that, in my opinion, are of a higher priority than dividing the legislative branch against the administrative branch or dividing the legislative branch among itself that takes away from the energy that we need to be focusing on other things, such as getting our health care under control, 
getting our economic status rebooted, even though we're going in a good direction. We're not there yet. And just spend our energy on other things instead of creating unnecessary tension. All right. I got you for one last question because I got to let you go when we take this break. So let me uh, ask you about broadband. Uh, Now that it looks like uh, people have got to uh, admit that online learning is a valuable source of learning here in the state of Arkansas, although the teachers unions have fought against it and superintendents as well. Uh, broadband is going to play a big part now as far as education goes. Uh, do you think that the, uh, the, the Senate, the state Senate, is going to be ready to wrestle with that problem? I do, and I think we're already seeing that effort now. Um, you know, Senator Missy Irving, uh, you know, successfully navigated, helping getting some funding for that, uh, along with the other senators and representatives. But she's she and uh, um, she lost his name, Stephen Meeks, yeah. Representative yeah, Stephen Meeks. Yeah, he's a he's a driver behind that subject, too. Um, I think everybody understands the value of it. Take take, you know, online learning out of the picture altogether. But we've got some really underserved areas where people have had to work from home, and it's a real struggle. So, there again, I go back. That goes back to what I said a while ago. Let's not let's not worry about these issues that are going to distract us. Let's worry about the issues that we can all unite on, which is getting more broadband out there and the other things that I mentioned, and we'll have a productive session. Last thing, don't forget for our listeners, uh, Foci, that is a ammo maker over in Italy, has announced they're opening a new plant in Pulaski County, evidently out in the, around the Port Authority area. They're going to spend $15 million, and it's going to make 85 new jobs. Uh, gun makers are paying attention to Arkansas is friendly to them, and that's a good thing, uh, Senator. You guys keep up, up doing the good works as far as that's concerned. Let me say something on that one. If we're so friendly we can draw a drunk gun manufacturer, we may not have as big a hate issue as we think we do. So let's focus on, let's focus on the positive things like bringing more businesses to Arkansas and keeping businesses from leaving Arkansas, and a lot of other things will take care of itself. You gotcha. State Senator Kim Hammer, don't forget about his show at noon on Saturdays right here on 101.1 FM. Who do you got on this Saturday? You got any special guests? Yes, I think uh, Ben has helped me get lined up. I think I'm going to be able to get Dr. Uh, Scott Jensen, who was on last week, and now he has been cleared by the Medical Board of Minnesota so he can talk a little more openly about how COVID death certificates are actually recorded, and we're drilling down, taking a look at that, and uh, got the uh, one of the coroners here in the state that's going to join me to talk about it from a coroner's perspective because they're involved with the pronouncing of death. So we're going to we're going to drill down on that issue a little more and examine how these deaths are being recorded and how death certificates are being filed. Sounds interesting. Thank you very much, State Senator Kim Hammer. I'll be talking to you in the near future. Thank you, Dave. All right. Bye-bye now. The state senator giving us his time this uh, Thursday morning. Some interesting uh, uh, information there. That Fauci story is an interesting one as well. $15 million investment by a uh, ammunition maker, and they're going to locate themselves in Pulaski County. If I get any more information on it, I'll make sure I, I bring it to you. $287,619. That's as far as I'm concerned. A lot of, you know, money. 
I mean, when you talk $100, I think you're talking a lot of money. Uh, what would you do if you had an extra $287,619 in retirement? Just uh, think about that for a moment. And that's how much a Little Rock couple could save in taxes on their uh, IRA and 401K thanks to the tax planning strategies from David Lucas Financial right here in Little Rock. Learn exactly how much money you could save with a free retirement tax analysis. Just know that if you save more than $250,000, and a lot of you have for your retirement, you want to be one of the first 10 callers to schedule your free analysis now at 501-222-3315. Do you have an IRA or a 401k? Then learn how much money in taxes you could save by calling 501-222-3315. The number one more time, 501-222-3315. Investment advisory services offered through David Lucas Financial and Arkansas Registered uh, investment advisor. We got to get the traffic and weather for you, and then I'll be back uh, to join you for the last segment of the seven o'clock hour here on the Dave Ellswick Show. I got to bring a story to your attention. It's a media story, and uh, Vernon Jones uh, was on, uh, I think CNN. It was. Let me make no MSNBC. And actor and, and the anchor on there, Craig Melvin. Uh, was saying that he was paid to shape a liberal narrative during a heated interview on Wednesday in which the lawmaker took exception to a question about whether or not he's compensated in his support for President Trump. Now, Jones is a member of Black Voices for Trump advisory board. He was asked by MSNBC anchor Craig Melvin if he's paid to support Trump as a Democrat. Quote, are you a paid campaign surrogate? Are you being uh, compensated, Melvin, bluntly asked? Let me be clear. You get paid to shape a liberal narrative. You get paid to attack this president, Jones shot back. I don't get a dime for this president. I don't get a dime from the campaign. Everything I've done has been me and based on my principle. So I, I thought that was interesting that this anchor who is on a, on MSNBC? Who's not doing a news program? So you have to you have to differentiate whether you're watching a news program or you're watching a talk program. A talk program is different from a news program. They might give you some news, like in my show, I may share with you stories about. You know, Fochi is coming to Little Rock, going to offer, get 85 jobs going. I might uh, offer to you that the governor is uh, behind hate crime legislation. But then I, I mix in my opinion as we go along because that's what my show is. My show is I take news and then I talk about it from the uh, side of what I know about it and my opinion about what I know about it. Uh if you're watching a straight news segment, it should just be a news segment, stories about what's going on. And that's hard to find anymore, to be able to find that. And for the people who are doing it to identify that they're doing straight news. A good person who does that is Hendrich. 
I think she's over, I think, at CBS now, used to be with Fox. Uh, but uh, when she comes on and talks about what's going on in the military and at the Pentagon and things of that nature, it's not her opinion about what's going on. She doesn't say um, General so-and-so made this statement today and, and uh, gosh, I think that's just ridiculous. She doesn't do that. She gives you the information and then lets you make the decision if you think it was ridiculous or not. And, and the, the hypocrisy of what happened on MSNBC has to be called out. You have a guy who's being paid to give a, an opinion-driven show on MSNBC, and he brings on somebody to talk about President Trump and says, hey, are you paid by the Trump campaign? Well, he's being paid by MSNBC. And we know for a fact that MSNBC uh, tells him what they want him to uh, push on. They do it at CNN. They do it over at uh, some of the other uh, ones that are out there, uh, Squawk Box and whatnot. Then you've got Fox. Uh, People at the top of Fox are, are adamant about, well, you can talk about this, but don't talk about that. I mean, I've been concerned about Fox when it came came to news um, when uh, they started cutting away uh, from briefings or from uh, uh, press uh, briefings that are going on. And somebody starts saying something that's uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, controversial and they cut away from it or they go to show. They say, uh, no, there's still riots going on in uh, Seattle. Here, let me show you. We've got, I've got uh, uh, information for you in the form of this video. And they go to show a video, and then Fox cuts away from it and goes back to their, uh, their talking head host. I don't like it when they do that because it makes me, why are you not showing this video that the person who was asked the question about perhaps, uh, um, you know, bad stuff happening in Seattle was going to show you bad things going on in Seattle. Uh, you know, they're going to unveil news. So anyway, yeah, it, it just goes to show really how slanted uh, the media has gone on all of this uh this stuff, this stuff, it's just crazy, crazy. And then uh, before we get away this last uh, hour here, and before you got to get to work here in three minutes, give you something to talk about at the water cooler. Uh, this one should get you going. If you don't like masks, you're not going to like this uh, because Fauci now has come out and said, hey, look, we should be uh, protecting not only our mouths and our nose, but also our eyes because this uh, uh, virus gets in through the uh, uh, mucous membranes a- a- around the, uh, the eyes. And so he's suggesting that uh, an eye shield, in addition to a face mask, would provide better protection against the COVID-19 virus, according to his report. Uh, something tells me I'm not... I- I've seen a few people with face shields on. I don't think that that's going to really catch on, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, they're, it's, a, it's an uphill fight just to get them to wear masks. Uh, and then a, a story came out as an aside 
Seventy-two uh, percent of Americans in a uh, in a poll and take a poll for what it is uh, say they will not take the uh, the new COVID nineteen virus uh, immediately. Well, bad news on the uh, front of our economy. We'll find out what Stephen Moore thinks about that from the Heritage Foundation. He'll join us after the news here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Dave Ellswick show here on 101.1 FM. Uh, the answer. Good to have you with us here to listen in because we got a very special guest. Couldn't have a better guest on today after the economic news that broke today than Stephen Moore, uh, who's worked with the Wall Street Journal. He's worked with Her- uh, Heritage. Uh, he's been in- involved in what's going on in the White House, and I'm sure he still has his fingers into that. And uh, Steve, the U.S. economy shrank at a 33 percent yearly rate in April through June, by far the worst quarterly plunge ever when the uh, viral outbreak shut down businesses, throwing tens of millions of people out of work, sending unemployment surging to 14.7%. Now, that's a snapshot of April to June. That is not a snapshot of what's happening at the end of July, correct? Well, that's a great point. You know, we're, we're seeing right now uh, actual a nice rebound. I mean, it, what we saw in May and June was very strong uh, job growth. Uh, things are starting to really improve. Uh, so th- this is looking in the rearview mirror. By the way, we knew this, right? We knew that the second quarter, I had estimated for the last month that the G- GDP for the second quarter would be down uh, somewhere between negative 30 and negative 35 percent. So I, I guess I was pretty accurate. Yeah, <laughs> what was you the were. Number 30, negative 33 percent. So uh, one of the lessons that we all need to learn from this is that what a, what a gigantic mistake it was to lock down our economy. This was, uh, in my opinion, this will go down in history as one of the greatest mistakes our governments have ever made in the history of our country. We have, we have caused the uh, bankruptcy of potentially millions of small businesses. We've seen, uh, you know, uh, more than 20 million people lose their job. We're seeing increases in, uh, uh, you know, depression, suicide, uh, you know, uh, drug abuse, uh, all of the pathologies that go along with, um, you know, putting people in isolation and and uh, and and uh, losing their jobs. We, we have to get the economy up and running. It's that simple. We can do this in a safe way. Uh, but the idea of locking down the economy, and by the way, some of these states are now talking about another lockdown, which is yeah. absolutely crazy, crazy. 
I mean, we're going to destroy our society if we continue to shut down our businesses. I'm on the board of two small businesses uh, that are, um, you know, that we don't know if we're going to make it. And, you know, I'm just a board member, but these are people who put their whole lives into these businesses. And it is so sad to see them fail because of government action. Uh, the liberals are out there every day, probably in Arkansas, and say, oh, shut down the economy, shut down the economy. Uh-huh. Now, you know why they want to shut down the economy. They want to destroy the economy so they can beat Donald Trump in November and elect a liberal. And by the way, I know what's going to happen, and you know this, too. Uh, let's assume the doomsday scenario that uh, what, what I regard as the doomsday scenario, that the left is elected. Because, by the way, it's not about electing Joe Biden. It's about electing the left to take over our government. Uh, I guarantee you the day after that happens, God forbid if it does, all of a sudden uh, COVID is going to go away. Right. Coronavirus. What's yeah. that? You know, it's, it's not. So anyway, look, I, I am uh, disappointed by that number. But I think uh, with, with President Trump leading the way, we can get out of this crisis. Yeah, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. You couldn't have said that better. You, that was very, very well said because uh, I don't think people realize what, well, I th- maybe people do realize of what they're doing. But, you know, I, I watch my Facebook page. It gives me a little snapshot into people's thoughts. And there's a lot of people still in our country, and I didn't think people were uh, easily scared like this, that are petrified of COVID-19. I'm not saying that it's not a serious disease. I'm just saying that you don't get petrified where you just stand and you don't you can't do anything. So what is the what is I've been meaning to ask you, what is the status of school openings in Arkansas? They want to do it. They, they're talking about doing it. But the pushback is strong. There's a lot of people out there who go, oh, no, COVID-19 is still out there. Well, so is the now, regular I, I, flu. Yeah. But I got to tell you this because we've been doing analysis. I'm not a health expert, but we've been consulting with some of the top ex- health experts at Stanford and Harvard and um, around the country. And there is almost zero risk, almost very, very close to zero risk to school children getting sick and, God forbid, dying from coronavirus. Oh, it's about the, the head of the CDC says it's about one in a million risk. Now, that's a about that's a lower risk than your your child dying on the school bus getting to school uh, right. or being uh, virtually being struck by lightning. So this idea that somehow we're going to keep our kids uh, healthy by keeping them away from school is crazy. And the damage we are doing to our kids, this would be a full year now for kids not having education. For 10, 11, 12-year-olds, that is devastating in terms of their social and, and educational development. Um, we cannot allow that to happen. Schools need to be reopened in a safe way. And by the way, if parents don't want to send their kids to school, I, I, I'm a libertarian. I believe that you know parents have the right to do what they want to do. But we can't de- deprive the 60 to 70 percent of parents who want their kids in school and need their kids in school. Uh, I mean, think about the damage this does to these kids of not being able to go to school for now for an entire year. I live in Maryland where our idiot governor is saying he doesn't want to open up the schools until after Thanksgiving to be early. Wow. Some schools, some school districts are saying we're not opening up until January. I mean, this is so devastating. And, and folks, of course, we have to be very health conscious. Of course, we have to put saving lives first. But we have to think about the long-term consequences of what we are doing to our children. This is child abuse. 
Well, you know what's really scary, Stephen, and you've heard it as well as I've heard it. If just one life can be saved, it's not that easily done. I mean, yeah, but let's, look, people die. Point. Let me, let me, I mean, this is a good point you make. Folks, the, the health consequences of keeping this economy locked down, I mentioned it, depression, suicide levels, drug abuse, alcoholism, uh, spousal abuse, um, things like delayed health care. We're finding out people are dying now of cancer and heart disease and other things because they couldn't get health care because we shut down our hospitals. I mean, there are real negative consequences to, uh, to this. I have, had, I have four good friends just in the last week who have called me and said, Steve, I have never been more depressed in my whole life. And they were reaching out. I mean, people are really suffering. Don't you think? I mean, people are suffering yes. from this isolation. I have a friend who's 80 years old. He hasn't been able to go out of his house for four months. He's been in, like, solitary confinement. I mean, this is really, really problematic, and we have to be smart about this. And, of course, the Democrats see this purely in political terms. All they want to do is create chaos and crisis uh, uh, so they can take power. And I think it's so disgusting, frankly, that, uh, that they put um, political power over what's good for uh, American kids and American families. All right. So for my listeners, because uh, before they think that the, the the sky is falling, what would you tell them about this this GDP plummet? I keep trying to tell them that's a snapshot of what it was. Let me try to give you a snapshot right. of what's coming. Yeah, I agree with you. I totally agree. And, and look, we need to, it, it, what it show, shows is why it's so important we get the economy up and running, why we can continue to, uh, uh, you know, look, we have the last two job numbers, the, uh, I think it was, I remember, uh, I think it was May was like seven and a half million jobs. Uh, June was like four and a half million jobs. I don't remember the exact yep. number, but they were in that magnitude. I mean, those were the two biggest job growth numbers in history of the country. So we do it now. They're not going to get quite as many as in July because we've seen a little bit of a reversal in terms of openings. But, um, but you know, we're, we're on our path. And I think that the thing that you, people have to ask themselves is, you know, how do we continue to see this economy get back, uh, you know, on, on a uh, solid track. Remember, a year ago today, we had the best economy in 35, 40 years, thanks to Donald Trump. It was tax cuts. It was deregulation. It was promoting American energy. I looked at Joe Biden's economic plan, and I got it. scares the hell out of me. I mean, he wants to raise tax on everybody. Everything that moves, he wants to tax. He wants to have massive income redistribution policies that sound like more like what they have in, you know, uh, you know, Korea, North Korea, than the United States or, you know, uh, Venezuela, uh, th- those policies would absolutely cripple the economy. So we have to make sure we have good economic stewardship. And I don't think there's many people in the country who could do a better job than Donald Trump has done. Well, you sit on panels of, that help the White House determine their narrative. Yep. What would you be telling the president right now? What would you be saying, Mr. President, you need to just bang away at this now? Well, the single, there's two things the, that would, would really facilitate this problem. Number one, uh, tomorrow is July 31st, I believe. It's, yeah, tomorrow's Friday, yes. July 31st. That is the last day of these idiotic $600 payments per week to unemployed people. That means many, many, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of workers uh, in um, Arkansas 
who become unemployed are getting paid twice as much money for being unemployed as going back to work. We cannot have an economic recovery if we're paying people not to work. I mean, that's just craziness. And by the way, it's not fair. It's not fair to the people driving their car right now to work, uh, doing, you know, oftentimes working in stores or working in factories or working in uh, construction uh, or hospitals, uh, that they get paid less than a person who's staying at home watching TV. I mean, that's crazy. That's lunatic. We have to stop that policy. That's number one. Uh, and by the way, Democrats are resisting that. They want people to be unemployed. Uh, the second thing we need to do is provide a payroll tax suspension for every single worker in America, whether they make the minimum wage or they make you know, $40 an hour. Let's get these uh, folks a 7.5% pay raise, and let's help the small businesses by suspending the payroll tax for them. Uh, that You want to see a job uh, recovery? That will accomplish it. All right. Stephen Moore is our guest. we got to get a break in. Let's do that. Then we'll come back and finish up our conversation. We're really lucky to have this guy on because he's a busy, 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 busy man. More on the Dave Ellswick Show in a moment at 101.1 FM, The Answer. Let's finish up our discussion with uh, Stephen Moore. Stephen Moore, you still work with the Heritage Foundation, Stephen? from Heritage right now, uh, doing some work with the uh, campaign and uh, helping uh, Trump get reelected. And so uh, this is a critical, critical three months for our country. And it's why this discussion we're having about how do we get this economy back up and running is critical because, you know, if the economy is improving this fall, which I think it will, I think, you know, people are going to say, hey, who do I think can most, you know, who do I think can really get the economy back on track, uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? And, you know, I don't care what your opinion is of Donald Trump. You know, well, I, I have a lot of, you know, I know half the people the country doesn't like him. But it doesn't matter whether you like him or not. I think everyone knows that Donald Trump would do a far superior job in rebuilding our economy than Joe Biden. Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I've been talking about that, whether you like him or not. Look, I've worked for people that I didn't uh, didn't like, but we were successful, and so I uh, had no problem working for him. I just I did my job, and that's the way you got to kind of look at that, I believe. But as I yeah. look forward, uh, let, let's talk beyond uh, just uh, economics. Yeah. Don't you believe that the majority still of Americans – uh, do like to see law and order and this whole defund the police that the Democrats and the left is pushing uh, all of this uh, rioting that's going on in Portland that uh, the left keeps gaslighting and saying, hey, look, it's not really happening. Happening. I know you're seeing video, but it's not really happening. Or you got Nadler out there saying Antifa doesn't exist. It's a myth. I mean, the average American is going to know that that's just B.S., well, they do. And look, this is this is the greatest lie since, you know, the government is here to help you. When the Democrats say, uh, you know, these are what do they keep saying? These are mostly peaceful protests as these cities burn down, as you see arson, as you see criminal behavior, as you see uh, people throwing rocks and throwing bottles and, you know, firecrackers uh, and Molotov cocktails at our police. This is this is mob rule. And these are the people that we would be electing to the government if, uh, if uh, you know, God forbid Joe Biden wins. He's going to put these people in his administration. I am disgusted by some of my liberal friends who refuse to speak out against this. I believe, you know, what's the thing that the liberals keep saying now? Silence is violence. 
Well, you know what? There's a lot of truth to that. Their silence is a form of violence. Um, and so uh, we, uh, I think Trump is going to win this election for four reasons. Number one, he's going to win because he's better on the economy than Joe Biden. Number two, he's going to win because Americans want safety and they do want law and order. I'm the biggest advocate of the First Amendment right of free speech and right of assembly and right uh, to protest. That is embedded in our DNA as Americans. But violence cannot be tolerated. It cannot be tolerated. And by the way, it's contradictory to what uh, Martin Luther King and other great civil rights leaders of our past have preached. Uh, so that's number two. Number three, he's going to win because he's the, he is the candidate who wants to protect our border. And that's a big issue for the country. And Joe Biden basically says anybody wants to come in, just, you know, anybody can come in and wants to. And I'm pro-immigration, but you have to have a regulated border. And number four, he's going to win because the issue of our time is China. And Donald Trump is tough on China. And Joe Biden is a pansy when it comes to China. So those are the four, what do you think? Those are the four reasons I think Trump will win. Yeah. I think you're right. I think you're right on. No doubt about it. I think the, the whole thing about lawlessness is going to be a bigger time, as big of a topic as it was when uh, Nixon was elected his first time around, because uh, everybody was saying, well, we want to do all these social programs and yada, yada. And the bottom line was Americans said, no, we want to get all this violence under control in our streets. Look, I, I lived through 68 and 69. This reminds yeah. me a whole lot of 68 I and 69. I, I grew up in Chicago. I remember 1968, the Democratic Convention. Yeah. And um, by the way, people should know that because the Democrats are saying, oh, there's all this chaos and crisis under Trump's presidency. Folks, the left is creating the crisis. We're going to reward them by allowing them to take over the government. If you're upset about the crisis, and the mayhem and the chaos in our country, then don't put these people in power. Don't don't reward them. That will only encourage further violence. I I, I really feel strongly that, as I said, I I'm a protester. I protested things. I think it's so important in America that we have these First Amendment rights. But it has to be peaceful. This idea that you can start shooting at our police, uh, that you can ruin neighborhoods. And by the way, the minorities. In these cities like Chicago and New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, the minorities, the immigrants, the, the Hispanics, the blacks who own property and homes in those areas, their property is being destroyed. They're the victims of this. They're the victims. Yeah, well, you remember, I, you grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Hammond, Indiana, all right, right outside of Chicago. And I can remember 68 and 69. I remember Caprini Green in Chicago, where an ambulance oh, yeah, the wouldn't. Police, the police wouldn't even go in the Caprini They wouldn't Green. go in. No, would not. <laughs> Absolutely would not. And why? Because of all of the liberal policies that have been propagated during the Great Society by Lyndon Baines Johnson. I mean, Amen. people have just not been taught their history at all. They've been taught a bastardized uh, piece of history, and it's, it's ridiculous. Hey, last question for you, for uh, my listeners. What, what do you tell them, tell other, tell other people about America so they can feel great about their country still? Well, look, we, we, are, uh, we are poised to be the global leader. We have the best economy of any country in the world. Uh, 11, you know, six months ago, we can re- return to a prosperous time uh, that makes America great again and puts America first. 
And this is the reason I've worked for Donald Trump for the last six years, because I don't think there's anybody better to do that. Folks, you're going to have a decision in November. Do you want to elect a businessman who's been incredibly successful in everything he's done? Or do you want to elect a guy who's done nothing in his life except been in politics for 40 years? I I don't think that's a tough, um, you know, that's a very tough uh, decision to make. But uh, that is where we're at right now. And uh, I so appreciate your show. And and let's do this again more regularly because I I really enjoy talking to you. All right, Stephen, we will do it. And keep uh, fighting the good fight, my man. Stephen Moore here. I'll do my friend. On the Dave Ellswick Show. He's uh, going to be busy, busy. I was talking to him during the break, and he's got several Fox shots that he's got to do today and uh, some other things. So he said it was going to be a, a very busy day for him today uh, in his life. He's a great, great person, and he is very right on uh, about what he's doing. And, and Steve and I, we go back a long time. I, uh, He's been on my show, uh, well, since the 90s. And when he was working with the Cato Institute, because he is a libertarian, he has very strong libertarian leanings, as do I. But in the same breath, uh, you know, I look at Donald Trump and though he's not everything I want in a president, uh, he is for sure uh, the man I want as president when it becomes between him and Biden. No doubt about it. And uh, he's going to help rebuild uh, the economy. And I'm also in uh, in agreement with Stephen that when they uh, depending, it depends on who writes the history. OK, but if a conservative writes the history or somebody who's looking at history from right down the middle, uh, what we have done to our economy because of the covid-19, uh, they're going to say, what a dunderheaded mistake it was to shut down the whole economy before because of it. Uh, there are still people hunkered down in their homes, scared beyond scared right now, uh, because they think that this disease is somehow uh, different than any other disease that we've ever fought as, as mankind is concerned. And that's not true. Uh, I understand at the beginning everybody uh, was like, well, who are these people? You know, what is this stuff? We need to take a break to find out. But didn't mean shut down the whole economy. All right, news is next. Back with more in a moment on the Dave Ellswick Show. Wasn't that a great interview with Stephen Moore? I mean, I really, you know what I really like about him? And I've liked him uh, since the 90s when he was with the Cato Institute and would come on my show. And I'm with him. I want to do it. I want to do more and more with him here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Try to get him on monthly to talk uh, because he's, he's such a great part of giving you positive things to think about, positive things to reach for. Uh, he's like I am. I believe we live in uh, on the precipice right now of one of the greatest economies on earth ever, which means we'll lift more people out of poverty because of it. We'll lift more people and put them up into higher echelons of the middle class. You'll be able to live a life that you have dreamed of as the American dream. That all can happen now, it can not happen if you listen to the naysayers and listen to the ones that say, no, let's go back to the previous policies that we had that we saw didn't work. Let's do it again. In fact, let's do it in spades. That's exactly what uh, that uh, uh, Biden wants to do. I mean, Moore was right. He wants to tax anything that moves and maybe even tax things that don't move. 
it's just it's it's crazy. I, uh, I I always talk on the show, and I've been making this argument that the reason I think Trump's going to win is because uh, the majority of Americans are center right. They're not they're not center left. They're center right. They're conservative, uh, more conservative than what uh, Biden and Pelosi and Schumer want to give them credit for, and they're tired of all of this violence going on out in our streets. This is the same thing that happened uh, in uh, the late 60s uh, when Nixon got elected and uh, beat Hubert Humphrey, who who also wanted a lot of these uh, very lefty programs uh, that they're talking about now on, in Biden's camp. And uh, Americans were looking at it and seeing the cities in flames and seeing people that were rioting in the streets and things weren't being taken care of. And so they elected Nixon because of that. I mean, overwhelmingly uh, put Nixon into the White House. So out in Portland last night, a group of racial justice protesters, that's what they call them now, and I'm not going to I'm going to say they're not protesters. These are rioters. These are lawbreakers. These are anarchists. These are arsonists that are out marching now. Uh, they made it roughly half an hour into their demonstration before the event turned violent and ended with confrontations with not only law enforcement officers, but also with the residents of the suburb they were marching through. Quote, racial justice protesters had marched through part of Springfield's Thurston neighborhood without incident for only about a half an hour before they found themselves met with a wall of police behind barricades blocking their progress. That's from the uh, registered guard of Eugene, and they're reporting on this. Just before 9 p.m., police pushed back. The scene devolved into a shoving match. Officers and protesters went to the ground. Black Unity's Tyshawn Ford was dragged away and arrested. Video showed the activists marching into the suburbs where they were quickly met by law enforcement officials who declared the event to be unlawful. This is not where you're supposed to be marching. This is not where you're supposed to be. The activists then began to push through a barrier that police had put up to keep them out of this residential neighborhood. KEZI 9 News reported that counter-protesters, people who lived in the neighborhood, showed up to confront the leftists and that people reported being punched, slapped, or hit with pepper spray. The news station reported that multiple people were taken into custody. And uh, the rest of the story is nothing but pictures and things of that nature. And then the march into the residential neighborhood comes as violent anarchists have repeatedly attacked the federal courthouse in Portland over several weeks in a row. In response to the violent attacks, federal law enforcement officers were sent in to protect the courthouse. Why did they get the president send them in? Because the governor of, or- of Oakland and the mayor of Portland were doing nothing. They were telling the police to do nothing. Zero. And these are Democrats. 
This is where they're standing and what, what they stand for. I stand for you got to have law and order. I'm not saying you got to shoot people with rubber bullets per se, although if they're throwing Molotov cocktails, I have no problem with you shooting rubber bullets at them either. Uh, that hurts like a son of a gun. It'll leave a bruise that won't go away for weeks. And after uh, initially getting that kind of pain, maybe it uh, strikes some uh, uh, sense into some people's minds. The Department of Homeland Security released a statement just uh, saying, highlighting just some of the violence that has occurred in uh, Portland over the last several weeks. Here's a statement. Let me read this to you. Violent anarchists broke a front window at the Hatfield Courthouse. Violent anarchists uh, graffitied the Hatfield Courthouse. Overall, the cost of damages on federal property done by the violent mob just one, this last night, the first night, where it really wasn't rubbed up at, at all, was about five grand. Uh, violent anarchists graffitied the BPA building. Uh, violent anarchists graffitied the Hatfield Courthouse again on the 30th. Violent anarchists graffitied the Edith Green Ronell Wyatt building. They graffitied the Terry Shrunk Plaza. Uh, Plaza. They graffitied the 911 Federal Building. They graffitied the Pioneer Courthouse. They graffitied the Gus J. Solomon Courthouse. Uh, they think graffitiing things is the way that they should they should go, and this goes back and back into into June. Uh, back on June sixth, they had destroyed fin- fencing surrounding uh, federal property. Uh, they damaged and breached the fence around the Hatfield Courthouse. They threw. Uh, uh, Molotov cocktails at the courthouse. Uh, they threw uh, excrement at the police officers. They threw bottles at the police officers. They threw golf balls at the police officers. Portland police were forced to deploy crowd control spray to disperse a crowd that was throwing uh, animal excrement at officers. So those are things that uh, what's going on. Okay, so uh, something that you'll want to uh, uh, consider about what uh, these people uh, are doing. It's, it's just a litany of violence from these people. They've got to be told that they cannot do it. Absolutely may not be allowed uh, to do it. That's something uh, that everybody needs to, uh, I hope, understand uh, about these, quote, protests that are turning violent out in our in our cities. And, you know, there's everybody's wants to say, but they're just protesting when you're spray painting buildings and, and other people's property. That's not protesting. That is not protesting. That's rioting. You don't want that to start happening. Uh, you've got, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff, like down in Southern California, uh, they have a piece of the Berlin Wall, which is a a perfect symbol for what lefties w- would end up bringing to us, uh, bringing us an East German Germany right here in America. A large chunk of the Berlin Wall placed at Chapman University in Southern California to serve as a symbol of freedom was defaced earlier this week. According to the Orange County Register, Chapman University officials revealed this week 
that someone vandalized the memorial with brown paint, which covered the historical graffiti on the bottom portion of the wall. So Daniel Stupa, president of the university, quote, I am outraged by this senseless attempt to destroy a piece, a priceless piece of history and heartbroken that this can happen on our own campus. Now, see, they take the graffiti off. It takes the, the, the stuff that was written in, on the wall about freedom that was written by the inhabitants of East Germany. The words that you would want to hear from people who truly knew what it was to be under a totalitarian regime. Over in East Germany with the Stasi and all that went on over there. Back in 98, when the wall fragment was first put up, here's what the Los Angeles Times reported that Chapman President Jim Dottie uh, did. He got the idea for this after seeing another piece of the Berlin, Berlin Wall standing at the Ronald Reagan Library. Quote, it's a symbol of the end of the Cold War, and it's a symbol of freedom. I was asking students about it, and they said, quote, we were just little kids when this came down. Well, I was just a little kid when this went up, he said. I remember Ronald Reagan standing at this wall and saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall said a university finance professor at the time. And now a piece of it sits in our own backyard. Said Stupa, let this terrible act of vandalism be turned into a time to celebrate how fortunate we are to be the home to an important piece of history. The left destroys history. The left wants to destroy all history. Doesn't matter if it upholds what they believe in or not. They want history to start in year zero, and that's now. They believe history is only now into the future. That's the history that they're worried about. They don't care about the abolitionist uh, monuments they pull down or uh, the monuments of people like Ulysses S. Grant and... and, uh, Catholic priests who brought uh, the uh, Christian religion to Native Americans and things of that nature. Oh, I know some of you are going to say, well, see, they were supplanting the Native Americans' religion. No, they just went out and preached the gospel. They didn't force them to, to do anything. It was if they wanted to, and the Holy Spirit moved, and a lot of people accepted Christ. The bottom line is this. We need our history to build upon our future. If you destroy your history, you have nothing to build your future upon. It's that simple. Hey, look, at, uh, look Orwell knew that when he wrote 1984. And he, he, he gave us the warning about that. Now, the left doesn't even want that book to be able to be taught in schools, nor Brave New World, nor Animal Farm, nor a lot of other books, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. They want those things torn out of the school systems of America. I say no. I say leave them there. I say look at what history was. Make sure we don't repeat the bad things again. All right, let's take a break. We'll get a break in, and then we'll be back with more here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Uh, you're listening either at 6 o'clock 
which is a re, uh, you know a, a, a playback of something that we've already recorded, or you're listening on uh, Facebook to it happening live, or you're on our podcast uh, on 101.1 FM, com. I'm just telling you, you can get this show wherever you want to at whatever time you want to. I just ask that you listen, all right? I ask that you listen. All right, it's Dave Ellswick's show here on uh, 101.1, uh, and we'll be back with more after this. Final segment for today's show, uh, the chief of the, fed, the federal officers in Oregon uh, unloaded on the media uh, yesterday for their refusal to call violent riots criminal. U.S. Attorney Billy Williams, the chief fed law enforcement official in Oregon since 2015, slammed media in a recent interview outside the Mark Hatfield U.S. courthouse in Portland for refusing to call the violent riots that have rocked the city for over two months criminal. Quote, so we're going back to how you were talking about this, shadowing the overall message about Black Lives Matter, right? A reporter asked Williams, you feel like the late night demonstrations are taking away from the fight for racial justice. Said Williams, quote, these aren't late night demonstrations. This is criminal activity. There is a difference. What you have failed and the media have failed to distinguish between you seem unwilling to call people engaged in criminal conduct criminals as opposed to lawful protesting. This is unlawful, Williams continued. And people, whether you're an opportunist and uh, antagonist, an agitator, an anarchist, call it out for what it is. So you're saying the late night activity that is criminal, the reporter pressed. What I'm telling you is you seem to want to refuse to call something uh, criminal. When asked why she could not accurately describe the violent violent riots as criminal, the reporter said because she doesn't have, quote, all the police records, unquote, and uh, that isn't her job because she is not a police officer. Now, let me just say for that reporter, that is milk toast. You're not taught that in school. Or at least we weren't taught that in school. I mean, you might want to say alleged or something like that uh, to cover yourself because maybe the police record later says that person didn't do uh, a, a violent activity or whatever. But if you had seen it and you knew what was going on out there, the alleged to violent offenders, and I understand they're just sub- you're covering their, 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 uh, their butts at that time. But don't act like, well, because I don't have the police records, I can't say it's, it's not violent in any way. Uh, you're using, quote, late night activity sounds like a party, William said. It's criminal. Look at the debris. We haven't had a front door since July 3rd. That's criminal, okay? You're choosing terms that sort of downplay the criminal activity. And what I'm suggesting is if there is an honest accounting of what this is, that helps build the reality check for how this can stop. That's my point. 
I mean, uh, yeah, go look up the story uh, with the, uh, the AG out there and listen to what he has to say and listen to what the uh, reporters are uh, asking of, uh, of him. It's, it's an eye-opener. It really is an, an eye-opener. Um, I'm going back. I'm looking real quickly here, trying to get some information that I, that I need. Uh, Heidi letting me know when I need to be out, so I want to make sure that I comply uh, with that. All right, other stories that are out there today that uh, you should know about. Uh, on the Daily Caller today, uh, did the Trump campaign recently announce uh, the speakers for the Republican National Convention? Let me go over this with you because uh, you'll want to, to know the, the, the answer. Uh, Trump's campaign announcing, announces its all-star lineup of speakers uh, for the new scaled-down Republican convention. Ted Nugent, Scott Vail, Antonio Sabata Jr., and Diamond and Silk will all appear virtually in Zoom boxes before Trump's accepted speech. You can already feel uh, the electricity. Uh, that has been fact-tracked. Uh, and here's what they said. The Trump campaign has not announced this group of speakers. Mike Sington, the person who sent the tweet making the claim, uh, confirmed that it was meant to be uh, satirical. It was meant to be a, a joke. President Donald Trump announced on July 23rd that plans to hold some Republican National Convention activities in Jacksonville, Florida, have been canceled. That, according to the AP, Trump had moved the rally portion of the convention from North Carolina to Florida after a dispute with North Carolina's Democratic leaders. Uh, Facebook uh, post a uh, book post which features a screen grab of the tweet from Singleton claims the Trump campaign announced a quote all star lineup of speakers. That is false. That is fake news. And uh, keep that in mind. So the Trump campaign did not do that. A closer inspection of Singleton's Twitter profile reveals he's often posting satirical content about political issues. Uh, Singleton confirmed to the caller in a Twitter direct message that he intended to tweet announcing speakers to just be satirical. A small group of delegates will meet for a few hours to formally nominate Trump in Charlotte, North Carolina, on August 24th, per uh, the uh, Associated Press. So there, there is the truth for you. Why you can't believe everything that you read uh, on uh, on Twitter or whatever. Um, the big story that we have talked about today, and let me uh, give this information to you one more time. And if you didn't hear Stephen Moore talk about this in the uh, first half hour, go back and listen to it uh, because uh, he'll tell you again, this is looking back. This is not looking now. Keep that in mind. This is not a present-day snapshot. This is a snapshot of what we did to ourselves when we shut down our economy here in the United States. The uh, gross domestic product fell 32.9% in the second quarter of 2020. 
2020, the largest decline the country's ever seen. In addition to the record drop in GDP, the Department of Labor reported Thursday over 1.43 million Americans filed initial claims for unemployment last week. But it's getting better. That's better than the 6 and 8 million people that were declaring for unemployment. All right, back with you on a Friday at 6 a.m. Don't miss it here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Have a great evening.